There's another aspect of abbreviation that I think merits mention because it helps to connect it to the rhetoric idea that I outlined a couple of episodes ago. An interesting question when we use an abbreviation, even an ordinary word, which as I've explained is a form of abbreviation, is how much of the, the information that that abbreviation refers to, albeit indirectly or obliquely, needs to be, or for that matter is present, in our minds when we use it. So it's one thing to say that we could, let's use the, the time-honored word, unpack the word table by, when asked what it means, say, oh, well, it's something with legs and perhaps leaves where people sit and have meals or read or work, whatever it might be. And we could go on and on and on, and on endlessly because we all have an enormous reserve, reservoir of instances in which the word table is used. But most of them are not immediately present to us when we use the word. They are, I suppose you could at best say, peripherally present as a sort of unrecognised, unreferenced, unaccessed cloud of potential meanings that shape the way we use the word, shape the way we understand the word, when either we hear ourselves using it or hear other people using it or read it or whatever it might be but they're not all present at once and you'll remember that one of my favourite themes is that one of the things we would most I think like to be able to do is say many things at once because our words certainly mean many things and so in a sense when we say many things we do mean many things but they are not all immediately present. And so you have a, an interesting, well, the correct word here is duality. And it has a mathematical meaning too, which I might come back to. Then again, I might not. But the, when we use the word table, all the layers of meaning that go beneath it, all the way down to the growth of the trees or the mining of the metal from which it was made, the DNA and the chlorophyll, you know, the whole shooting match of layers, which it has, stands as an abbreviation for going down, and all the layers of meaning that we might attribute to it if someone persisted with the question, but why are you talking about this? Why does this matter? What's this all about? What's this got to do with the price of fish and all these silly expressions? All of that, rather like an hourglass figure, is focused in the central use of the word table, with the space above and the space below implicit, but the word alone explicit. And of course, what makes that very interesting is that it means that when we use the word table, we are, in a sense, saying many things. We may not be immediately, directly, focally aware of many things, but the word has the capacity to say many things and, in a sense, can't avoid saying many things. And therefore you, when you listen to me, 
will almost inevitably pick up on levels of that abbreviation that are slightly different from those that I might have primarily in mind. And so our communication operates and works to a degree because we're both using the same word, but the, but the dimension, the network of meanings that we each associate with that word will be slightly different and can't but be slightly different. Because even were we identical twins, we would still have followed different paths in space and time and therefore we would have encountered those words in different places and times and ways and so we would mean and understand different things by them. So as an abbreviation, the word table has the capacity to grab all these things, all these layers, and convey them, most of them very indirectly and obliquely and faintly. But if you think about the thing that often ex excites children when they first come across something like literary criticism or interpretation, and somebody starts waxing lyrical about what a Shakespeare sonnet or a play or a, a novel by somebody or other means, very often the English teacher will be presented with the complaint from the child or the class sometimes, but it, it is not conceivable that, the, that Shakespeare meant all that. Or someone goes to the theatre and sees a particularly avant-garde show of, you know, way of staging something like Hamlet or Macbeth or Julius Caesar or whatever it might be and comes away complaining that, uh, that Shakespeare would never have recognised Julius Caesar done with gangs of Hell's Angels on motorcycles. And this is just an example of the fact that the director and the actors can lay hold on a dimension of these words and set them in a context that other people might not even think of doing. Indeed, one of the things I suppose that makes going to the theatre rewarding is that you, end, you are encountering, you're forced to come to terms with or to face something that you might not otherwise have come across. So the complaint of the child that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have meant all this should be countered with, well, I think if you mean meant it in a self-conscious, direct, focused way, you're right. But the way we use language, and it isn't just poets and playwrights and novelists who do this, all of us do it all the time, the way we use language inevitably borrows from and therefore directly or indirectly, intentionally or unintentionally passes on a colossal cloud of meanings, a network of meanings into which our words and sentences fit and from which they derive their meanings. So to suggest that somebody didn't mean something when they used a particular set of words really betrays a failure to grasp how language works and yes they may have had a particular meaning in mind but they may also have had a sort of 
peripheral, intuitive meaning that they couldn't possibly find the time to lay hold on in all its different dimensions, which of us could, we end up having to say everything. You know, the, as I said before, the purpose of an abbreviation, the purpose of a word, is precisely that it allows you to lay hold on this vast, vast ocean of meaning, cloud meaning, choose your metaphor for yourself, that suits you. In a very simple way, von Humboldt speaking of the infinite using the finite, or even if not the infinite, then speaking of something far, far, far bigger than appears to be the case for the simple words and sentences that we use. So, I think what one can say is that Shakespeare, or if you like, whoever wrote Shakespeare's plays, I'm not going to get into that, but whoever wrote those words had a peculiar talent to lay hold on and express oceans of meaning, clouds of unknowing, as Julian of Norwich called it, that would be seized upon again and again, millions, billions probably of times, over human history, as conveying things that other people I resonated with and wanted to say themselves in some form or other, albeit in the form of Hell's Angels or reinterpreting Romeo and Juliet as a West Side story or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter. And indeed, I would go so far as to say the question of what the author meant in some intentional focused sense is probably the least interesting question you could ask about any sensible, worthwhile piece of literature. So, for example, you know, take a almost a short uh, masterpiece as you can name, um, Emily Dickinson's On Death, is it called? No, actually, I don't know what the title is, but Because I Could Not Stop for Death, He Kindly Stopped for Me, The Carriage Held But Just Ourselves, and Immortality. Brilliant unimaginably brilliant in a, in a snatch of a few words but something that people have seized upon and used or you know, take Stevie Smith's Not Waving But Drowning or anything you like just that the difference that separates the, the great poet from the rest of us is their capacity to use words in ways that resonate in these multidimensional ways because they in a sense abbreviate mountains of meaning, or if you like, hourglasses of meaning that speak to everyone, or most people, and which therefore find themselves rehearsed by many people. And you'll have heard me in these episodes frequently quote biblical phrases, and although there would have been a time when I was quoting them because I believed in the authority of the Bible and the existence of the God that it writes about, now I just think they're great ways of talking about things. And having a great way of talking about something is two-thirds 
of the battle. And this, of course, relates to the point we were making about mathematicians and scientists and manifolds and quantum field theories and everything that they want to say because they've got a language in which they can talk about these things, they can make progress. So if you've got the language, use it. Don't be sniffy because you think it originated from some primitive world where people believed in things that go bump in the night or whatever it might be. Use the language. You know, why do you eat what does not satisfy and drink what does not quench thirst is as good a, a caption to modern life as you'll find anywhere from anybody written in any language in any time. And if you want to go to the heart of what it is that's wrong with the world, it's precisely that we have no answer to that question other than, well, we're just doing what everybody else does. Eating what doesn't satisfy and drinking what doesn't quench thirst. And so adding to it the myth that the solution to something that doesn't work is more of it, and you've pretty much encapsulated the modern dilemma and condition in a couple of sentences, neither of them particularly original. So, where does that connect to rhetoric? How does it connect to rhetoric? Well, I hope you can see, I think it's pretty obvious, that what rhetoric does is in a sense it encapsulates, if you forgive the word, crystallises, or even concretizes, renders concrete, renders into a, into a tangible, repeatable form something that might otherwise be lost because it's fleeting in a way that is thereby repeatable and because it's repeatable we can keep thinking about it. We can repeat it with different nuances. Every time we say it we will be aware of different aspects of the world of meanings that it abbreviates, that it references. And so the, the rhetoric, the rhetorical flourish, the ability to grab something, even though you don't really know what you're saying. And I'm sure that many of the early scriptural traditions, you know, people didn't have a fully worked out idea of what they were doing. And so they just latched on to the notion that what they were doing was talking about a deity or a supreme being or whatever their culture taught them to believe. But they wrote in that genre because that was the genre that they found it easiest to find the rhetorical flourishes in to say the things that they wanted to say and that they thought needed to be said and that might never otherwise be said and that might otherwise be lost forever. So, the notion of abbreviation, the notion that words must mean more than we believe they mean or can possibly directly and focally intend them to mean goes hand in hand with the notion that words can therefore be used to lay hold on, grab hold of things that need saying that might otherwise not be said. And that's such an important point that I think I'm simply going to leave it there.
because this is to go to the very heart, not just of the literary or the cultural traditions that we value so much and about which, which in their way form who we are, but when we're dealing with things like technical terms in mathematics or science, they're sort of doing the same thing. They don't have a fully worked out, focal, direct, immediate understanding of what they're talking about all the time. Maybe the very, very, very most brilliant of them do. But even Einstein's Grossman, you must help me or I shall go mad, indicates that even Einstein struggled to know the relationship, to grasp the relationship between the formulae, the mathematical symbols that he was writing down and the meanings that he wanted them to have. So I think that we can see commonality here of a very rich and important kind between grasping an idea fleetingly, what the ancients used to call to apprehend it, and that most of our apprehending doesn't involve comprehending in the sense of fully grasping in a focal direct way what it is we're trying to say. We are, like the poet, floundering around and like Augustine in his De Trinitate, speaking, writing, not because we think we can nail something forever and permanently, but because we can't not say something, because not to say something about these important things is nigh on impossible. So we speak because silence is worse notwithstanding the imperfections of what we say and write and record and podcast. Thank you for listening.